Okay. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm not sure Linda knows what she said yes to, but um, hopefully everybody is there. Linda, did uh, Lori and Terry make it in? Hopefully they did. Excellent. Okay, good. Well, welcome to Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews. Hope you've had a great holiday season and that you're uh, starting out the new year well, and I appreciate you starting it out with uh, with this class. What I would like to do uh, is a couple things. I'd like to cover off a review of what we covered last week, which was the sort of second half, if you will, of the seven Noahide laws. And then I want to talk uh, a little bit about um, faith and belief that we discussed last week, and then get into some interesting concepts of uh, good and evil and success and happiness, uh, and what that's really all about from a Torah perspective. Uh, before I start, any questions that anyone has left over or anything that you want to make sure we cover tonight? Okay, if you do, just type them in or uh, grab the microphone and uh, we'll go from there. We covered uh, last week several of the Noahide laws. The first one is the prohibition against certain sexual relations. And as we discussed, the seven Noahide laws are not exactly specific laws, but they are individual, they are categories of laws or themes of laws. And then in order to get into the specifics, we have to go a little bit deeper because if you simply say, well, gee, there's a prohibition against certain sexual relations, it certainly begs the question, well, which ones? And so we mapped, over the last uh, couple sessions, we have mapped the seven Noahide laws against the 613 commandments that were given to the Jewish people. Uh, the 613 are very specific, detailed commandments. The seven are categories, as we've discussed. So under that category of prohibition against certain sexual relations, uh, there are these six. that a, a Noahide is prohibited against having sexual relations with uh, a man's mother, um, that is his mother, his father's wife, uh, his sister, where they have a common mother. So there's a little bit of a difference there. If they had a common father but not a common mother, it's my understanding that would not be a prohibited relation. Uh, another man's wife, and that constitutes uh, adultery. Uh, having relations with a uh, another person, uh, a male, a man having relations with male homosexuality, and having relations with any kind of an animal, which is commonly called bestiality. Uh, so those are the specific prohibitions uh, against certain sexual relations uh, that the, uh, the Noahide law covers. Um, interestingly, it is my understanding, and we discussed this a little bit last week, that marriage for a Noahide occurs when a Noahide man and a Noahide woman have sexual relations with the intent that it constitute marriage. So there is not necessarily uh, any public ceremony that has to occur, but it, uh, although that's you know certainly I think a, a positive thing, but from a halakhic standpoint, uh, it's my understanding that that is what constitutes marriage, and that they can also uh, end that relationship by one of them um, leaving the domain 
uh, and thereby affecting the divorce. You may be familiar that in the Jewish community there is a written contract of marriage and a written divorce decree, and there's a fair amount of, of legality around that. Uh, that legality, to the best of my understanding, does not devolve upon Melahides. Then we talked uh, about the prohibition against eating the limb of a living animal. This is kind of an unusual commandment that crops up. Uh, and clearly states that we as Noahides cannot eat any part of an animal that was removed from the animal while it was still living. So as an example, you can't go and grab a cow and rip a leg off and start munching on it or roast it over a fire and then munch on it while that, if you pulled it off that animal while it was still alive. There's certainly an important lesson here with regard to cruelty to animals but we also discussed that this teaches us a very important law about permits. Uh, if everything belongs to God, then uh, the question comes, well, how can we partake of anything? And if we go back in Genesis, man was clearly given the right to eat uh, fruits of trees and herbs of the field and that sort of thing. Uh, at the time of Noah, he was given the permission, or the permit, if you will, to eat meat as long as it was meat taken from an animal that was already dead. So we do not have a permit to come along and just take something that's alive and start uh, munching on it while it's still alive. Now, that sounds really gruesome, uh, but in fact, uh, the situation, there are a number of cases where that can actually come up in today's society. One is, if you're familiar with um, a, uh, a creature called stone crab. Uh, it's a shellfish that uh, my understanding is they go harvest the crab, rip a leg off, throw the crab back into the water, and then the crab supposedly grows another leg, and then they take the crab, or the leg that they pulled off, and they serve it in restaurants. And you can go into restaurants in different parts of the country and get this. Um, now, I don't know, logically, I have not followed up to determine whether a shellfish falls under the definition of an animal for purposes of this commandment. Uh, but the first time that I learned about stone crab was when uh, I was invited to have some and realized, whoa, I don't know if that's legally permitted for me. And so I decided to order something different on the menu instead. So, and there are some other uh, things that are uh, harvested off animals while they're still alive that would be prohibited to us in that regard. So an important teaching for us about permits, that we, we only have the right to partake of things in this world to the degree that God gave us permission to do so. And then the final um, uh, commandment is to establish courts of law uh, in order to enforce the seven Noahide laws. So it's very clear that we need to have a court system. And Interestingly, Maimonides holds that we are supposed to set those courts up in order to enforce the, uh, the other six Noahide laws. Nachmanides, uh, the Ramban, disagrees and holds that that was more for the purpose of civil matters, uh, but all of them agree that any act that contributes to an unjust court decision should be prohibited, um, and there are a variety of positive and negative commandments related to justice and how one is to carry out justice um, and uh, so on from there. So 
So let me pause and let me have a question. How does what Rabbi Richmond said about Noahide's eating of kosher beef? Uh, it's very interesting. There, there is some um, difference of opinion amongst the rabbis uh, about uh, what is appropriate meat for a Noahide to eat. And I'll give you my best understanding of Rabbi Richmond's position on this, um, which I heard from him at the, the Miami conference, and I think it is this that if you go to a modern slaughterhouse um, where you just get commercial beef, um, then they run those animals through a slaughtering process. And they are supposed to be dead before they begin to cut the animal up. But that, in fact, it is possible, and there have been some reports of this, that animals somehow make it through the process and are not completely dead before they have begun to be cut up. And so Rabbi Richmond, I believe, held that in order to avoid that possibility, uh, a Noahide should eat kosher meat. Um, I spoke with one of my rabbinic mentors about that situation, and uh, my understanding of his position was that uh, if um, it was clearly that this was a minority situation where, you know, the, the clear majority of animals going through would be dead before um, they were slaughtered, before they were cut up. Uh, then the possibility that, you know, a few might slip through, but by the time they come out in the packing house and you go down to your local neighborhood grocer and pull out, you know, a steak, you have no idea, of course, you can't track back which animal that came from and so forth, then uh, it was acceptable to, um, to go ahead and partake of that because there is a, uh, a certain law, and I'm not an expert on this, but uh, where um, if there is a small amount of something that's unacceptable in a large group of things that are acceptable, and you take something out of that pool, uh, then you're allowed to, to operate on the basis that it's an acceptable thing to do. Now, again, this gets into differences of opinions between the rabbis on uh, certain halakhic matters. And I'm not trying to make a halakhic determination here for you because that's not my field and uh, that's not something I would be comfortable doing. Uh, Mona, you brought up that you were told to eat chicken and fish. Uh, you know, eating chicken and fish is certainly a safe thing to do if you have a concern about uh, the, uh, the commandment around uh, beef. But there are those rabbis that hold that, yes, it is as long as you, um, you know, know that the slaughterhouse is, uh, you know, that virtually all those animals or most of those animals that are going through are dead before they are slaughtered. Um, then you're okay. Uh, one of the things that we do here, and we have the, I guess you'd say the luxury of that, is we have a, a consumer's co-op in our area that uh, gets their meat only from farms that practice very humane uh, slaughtering practices. And so uh, some of the things that, um, uh, you know, you would see in, in maybe some of the, the giant uh, uh, huge packing plants you wouldn't find in those. So, um, but it is my understanding that it's okay to partake of that. Linda, thank you. I uh, I, I appreciate that, and uh, uh, that's that is my best understanding. It's, it's been a 
an interesting subject we've been uh, had quite a discussion with some rabbis around because also there was a concern one of our Noahide friends actually slaughters his own meat and he found uh, that animals will twitch after they are uh, slaughtered for quite some time and he was concerned about whether that constituted um, uh, you know um, not being dead and uh, a quick reading of Maimonides seemed to make it sound like that wasn't okay, but in speaking with um, Rabbi Chait, he shared with me that no, that twitching does not constitute uh, a prohibition, uh, that as long as the animal has, has died and the major convulsions are passed, then you're okay. Nerves, I guess, can go on and twitch uh, for, for hours afterwards, but that's uh, not considered the animal still being alive. Okay, any, any other questions on that point that I can answer? Okay, Linda, you're very welcome. Thank you. Okay, and then we discussed, so, so those are the seven Noahide laws, um, the six prohibitions that you see up on the screen. Uh, and then the one positive commandment to establish courts of law. One other area that we discussed last week uh, is the area of faith and belief. And we discussed that there is no concept in Torah of believing something that you don't know. Uh, Torah does not ask you to blindly believe anything. What it does ask you to do is to get in and study and learn uh, so that you know about something. Uh, as opposed to not knowing about it. And there are religious approaches in the world that think that what's important is what you believe and that sometimes uh, the more absurd it is, the more laudable that's considered to be, which really uh, doesn't make any sense when you begin to analyze it because um, that would mean that the more certain you became of something, the less religious you would actually be. Uh, so the, the Torah says, get in, dig, find out something so that we know and understand what the ideas are. As we've discussed before, nobody ever says, you know, they believe in yogurt. Uh, they know yogurt. They, they, you know, creamy white stuff comes in a bunch of fruit flavors. Um, a lot of people have it in their refrigerator and it tastes good. Uh, it's there. I can see it. I can touch it. I can taste it. I can feel it. Um, and even... Similarly, with regard to electricity, uh, I don't know of anyone who has ever seen electricity. Uh, they have seen the manifestations of electricity and what electricity does, but we haven't actually seen it. It's a flow of electrons. And yet we don't say, well, I believe in electricity. We know it's there. We operate on that basis. We don't stick our fingers in the light socket. Uh, we don't drop the hair dryer in the bathtub. Uh, because we know there will be really uncomfortable consequences if we do. Um, so that's the kind of understanding that uh, the Torah approach wants us to, to have. Uh, there are lots of people out there that believe lots of different things, and just because someone believes something doesn't necessarily make it true. Uh, it doesn't also matter how many people believe it. The question is, uh, is it true, and what can we find out about that? Interestingly, also, we discussed that many religious approaches uh, in the world are like clubs. If you want to be an X, you convert to X. If you want to be a Y, you convert to Y. Uh, the Torah does not take that approach. 
It's a very holistic approach. Uh, I doubt that you will ever get a knock on the door from someone uh, in a white shirt and a dark tie and a dark suit saying, gee, will you please come down to the local synagogue uh, with us? Uh, Judaism doesn't seek converts. Uh, and in fact, if you go to a rabbi and uh, ask to be converted, uh, the first thing we'll probably do is try to talk you out of it. Why? Because there's no need for it. Uh, you can have a relationship with God. You can study. You can learn. You can grow in character. There's a whole lifetime full of stuff for us. Uh, so conversion, it's allowed, but it's not necessary. Um, so a very different approach than, uh, than what we're used to. Any questions about that? Okay, let's move on. I'd like to talk about a couple of fundamental concepts. Uh, one is good and evil, uh, and one is success and happiness. Uh, they're really fundamental concepts that we refer to all the time, but the question is, do we really have a clear definition in our mind when we, when we refer to them? For example, just what is good, and what is evil, and what is success, and what is happiness? So in sharing these ideas with you, I am relying heavily on the teaching of my mentor, uh, Rabbi Morton Moskowitz. And as always, any errors associated with my translation of, of those ideas rest with me. So to explore these ideas a little further, um, I'd like to look at um, two things. Uh, Psalms, or actually just, just one. Psalms 1. Uh, one through three, the first chapter in the book of Psalms, because there are some very important principles to be found there. And these first verses read like this. You're probably familiar with them. The praises of man are that he walked not in the counsel of the wicked, and stood not in the path of the sinful, and sat not in the session of scorners. But his desire is in the Torah of Hashem, or Torah of God, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree replanted by streams of water that yields its fruit in, its season, in due season and whose leaf never withers. And everything he does will succeed. So here we have what appears to be a formula for success. Now, the great Torah scholar Sephorno says that a person's happiness and success in this world and in the world to come is reached by a person defined in the first two verses of this psalm. That is, by a person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the path of the sinful, doesn't sit in the session of scorners, but his desire is in the Torah, and in that Torah he meditates day and night. So let's establish some definitions. First of all, what is success? And let me pause and ask you to think about that for just a second and then type up any answers, thoughts that you may have. What is success? Any thoughts about that? We use that term all the time. What is success?
Okay, Mona, good. Accomplishing a goal set before you. Okay. Anybody else? Linda, looks like you're about to put something out there. Hashem allowing me another day. <laughs> okay. That's a very good point. I, listen, I heard of a guy once whose definition of, of uh, when things were going well was any day he could swing his legs out over the edge of the bed and stand up is a good day. So, very good. I'll suggest a, a, a slightly different approach, but, but saying very much the same thing, I think, as Mona said, that success is carrying out a plan that achieves its end carrying out a plan that achieves its end. So if we follow that for a moment, success would have two components. First, there's the plan, and then there's the carrying out of the plan. Now, in carrying out a plan, there are two things that can cause us to fail. One, something's wrong with the plan itself or in the execution of the plan. Or two, something outside of me in the world at large stops me. So, for example, if my plan is to fly to Atlanta for a meeting and a big snowstorm shuts down the Atlanta airport, thus preventing my flight from even, from even taking off for Atlanta, that's something that's completely outside of my control. So that's an initial definition of success. Two components a plan, and then carrying out the plan. And I've got two possible causes of failure, something wrong with the plan or its execution or something outside of my control. Now, what becomes important next is, what should I be successful in? And I want to suggest to you that there are two types of success. The first is based on fantasy. For example, uh, I want to be the greatest race car driver or the fastest runner or the best gymnast in the world. Anything like that. Competition like that is a complete fake out to myself. And here's why. Let's suppose that I want to be the fastest runner in the world. Well, suddenly I have turned my worth over to powers completely outside of myself. And here's why. Because if I do that, if I want to be the fastest runner in the world, my measurement of my worth as a runner is always dependent on what someone else is doing. It's not an objective measurement. If someone else manages to run a mile three seconds faster than I do, then I'm a failure. And that becomes a very frustrating approach to life because I'm always chasing what someone else is doing. So an example of that might be Olympic athletes. Consider the years and years and years of intense training that they go through just so they can have a very brief, and brief is sometimes measured in seconds, a very brief chance to try to be the best at some event 
that has little or nothing to do with almost anything practical in real life. I mean, at the end of the day, does it really matter that Joe can slide down a snowy slope with his feet attached to two sticks 0.01 seconds faster than Phil? I mean, in the world of life, what difference does that actually make? I watched an Olympic downhill skiing event happen once where the commentators pointed out that the snow was faster earlier in the morning. But as the sun came out and slightly melted the snow, it became just a little bit slower. Now, the person who won the event only won it by something like hundredths of a second over the second place finisher. But he happened to have picked, been picked in, in however they, they you know, decide who goes first, who goes second. That person happened to have been picked to go early in the morning when the snow was fastest. And after he won, you could imagine the jubilation and happiness on his face and, you know, the high-fiving kind of thing and that sort of stuff. Yet, on a different day, or if, in fact, he'd been picked to go later than the second-place finisher, he likely wouldn't have done so well. And in this case, in my view, uh, he won not because he was necessarily the best, because he just got plain lucky. Yet look how much emphasis is placed on that gold medal. Why is that? What is the draw here? I want to suggest that it's an ego fake out, where we have somehow attributed value to something that in the broad scheme of life, we could argue doesn't have value. For example, does it really matter that a person can solve a Rubik's Cube faster than anyone else in their particular city or state or country? When we look at those kinds of situations, they're based on a fantasy that somehow, if I'm better at somebody else at a particular event, that makes me somebody or it somehow gives me value. And I'm not trying to put down any Olympic athlete or anything like that. I'm just looking at the situation and the importance that we place on certain things and the question of why do we place so much importance on that? You know, for example, um, an interesting thing would be, uh, to the best of my knowledge, it is possible to make huge amounts of money if you are a star golfer. But I don't believe that it is possible to make anywhere near that amount of money if you are a star ping pong player. Now the question would be, well, why do we place so much emphasis on those? So I want to suggest that we shouldn't strive for fantasy because there's no real gain to it. And you've got to look at the price that we pay sometimes for these things. Like years and years spent in training uh, I, I understand in one case, an Olympic swimmer spent years training, won the gold medals, and then never wanted to get back in the water after that. And you've got to scratch your head and you say, gee, why, why would I do that? I would suggest the Torah approach is that we only strive for practicality or for a pleasure if it's one that's allowed and doesn't harm us. So, you know, as the, saying, as the saying goes, poor people think that money will solve all their problems, yet rich people have no such illusions. People think that when they get X, whatever X is, X is the money, the Jaguar, the uh, home in the Riviera, the private jet, 
the gold medal, the world championship, whatever, that they'll be happy. And yet society is just replete with examples uh, that that isn't so. Uh, in fact, I understand, if I recall correctly, it was J. Paul Getty, uh, who and at that time he was the richest man in the world, uh, so before Bill Gates, uh, who was once asked by a reporter, how much is enough? And his response was, just a little bit more. So, and if you become the greatest person in the world, well, you know, then you'll have to start competing with God. You won't be able to stop. So this first kind of success, the one based on fantasy, uh, is not one that's going to get us where we want. And Terry and Lori, thanks for your comment, to do something to the best of your ability. Yeah, when you do something to the best of your ability and you're, you're you know, working with yourself, that's one thing. When you're competing against the other person, now I've taken my work and put it uh, to someone else. So what about the other type of success? What would that be? I would suggest that that is satisfying an emotion that is not a fantasy. So, for example, let's suppose I want a certain type of car. Uh, and it's possible that the car will satisfy me, particularly if I want it for some practical reasons. Let's say I want a Lexus. And I want a Lexus because I like soft seats, I like a quiet ride, I like the reliability factor of the car, I like all the cool gadgets that it comes with. And so I save up and I save up and I finally get one and I love it. It's wonderful. Okay? That can be a type of success that works. Because it's satisfying an emotion that I have, the desire for a nice car and one that feels good and I like the driving of it and all the stuff. And, and it satisfies the emotion. But if I wanted that same car because of greed or jealousy or because my neighbor has one and I can't stand it, that he has one and I don't, then I'm never going to be satisfied. The success has to be a practical thing, a real enjoyment to me um, in and of itself. So the key here is that we have to pursue things that are practical and bring us real pleasure. And in other words, we need to stay in the world of reality. Any questions so far? Okay, so let's move on and talk about happiness. So what is that? Anybody want to take a shot at what happiness is? It's something everybody seems to want, and yet it's very challenging and slippery to try to define it. I'll suggest to you this definition. Well, let me wait a moment. Go ahead. What is happiness? And Jackie said an illusion at the best. I'm not sure I understand what that means. Can you elaborate just a little bit? Are you welcome to take the mic? Ah, Mona, okay, very good. Being content with what you have. Okay. And Terry, Lori, looks like you're about to finish up that other statement. Ah, if I think I'm happy, then I'm happy. Ah, that's a very good point. State of mind. 
Very good. Okay, Jack, you're suggesting happiness depends on those circumstances. Okay. So let me suggest a slightly different definition of happiness. <clears throat> and it's kind of the reverse of what I probably would have expected years ago when it was introduced to me. Ah, I see, Jack, which may be only an illusion. Okay. The circumstances, yep, maybe only an illusion. I'll suggest that happiness is where you have no conflicts. Happiness is where you have no conflicts. Now, to achieve that, we'd have to know what reality is and learn to live within it, which is our first step in undoing our conflicts. So we find out what reality is and live within it. So I'm suggesting that happiness isn't something we proactively achieve directly. It's what happens, it's what we get when we when we remove uh, conflicts from our lives. And for purposes of this class, I'll suggest that living in reality means living within the laws of nature. I mean, there's a separate system of God's personal providence, but that's beyond the scope of, of what I wanted to get into tonight. For now, let's just focus on God's system of the laws of nature. We all have to live within that. The wind blows, the rain falls, tornadoes come and go. Uh, we're all subject to all that stuff. If I swim out into a riptide and get pulled under, the waves will not care whether I'm a righteous person or not. If I swim in a school of hungry piranha, the piranha will not care that I didn't intend to swim there, or that I'm a really nice guy if you get to know me. Uh, apart from some special intervention by God, the laws of nature act on the righteous and on the wicked the same way. So it's up to me to know and understand the laws of nature, the reality around me, and act accordingly. And we see a beautiful illustration of this uh, in the story of Jacob when he meets Esau after having spent many years with Laban. You may recall that Esau thought that Jacob had stolen his birthright, and Esau was pretty upset about it. Uh, so Jacob fled and spent many years with a relative named Laban. And after marrying, having children, and amassing a great amount of wealth, Jacob leaves Laban, and as he's traveling, he gets word that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. Now, most people don't usually come calling cordially with an entourage of 400 men. And so Jacob had a pretty good idea that this didn't bode very well for him. It's very instructive to see here in this situation what Jacob does. In essence, he does three things. He divides his group into two. His idea is that if Esau attacks one group, the other group will escape. So that's preparation for war. He then sent Esau a whole set of gifts, livestock and things, all in groups. And he sends one group, followed by another group, followed by another group. This is sort of like sending a new, a new gift to your neighbor uh, about every half hour for quite a while. Even if, if um, the neighbor's mad at you, it's going to be pretty hard for him to stay mad under such an onslaught of continuous gifts. That was Jacob's preparation for peace. And then he prays 
And I mean, in addition to all that, he prayed to God for success. So in essence, he's done everything practical that's within his power, and he prays to God to take care of the things that are outside of his control. This is a beautiful Torah formula for living our lives. It's our responsibility to do everything that's within our control. A person cannot sit around uh, and expect that God's going to, um, you know, for example, feed him. Uh, he needs to get up, get an education, get a job, start a business enterprise, and provide for himself. And once we've done everything that's within our control, then we can pray to God and ask for help to take care of the things that are outside of our control. That is both living within the laws of nature and the world of reality. Okay, let me pause here and look at, make sure I haven't missed any, uh, any comments. Mona, you ask, are you sure we're in the real world and it could be just our perception and not true? That's a great question. We have to, though, at some point, operate on the basis of what we know. Uh, and, uh, you know, Linda, as you said, like it's being seven below outside tonight. I mean, I look outside and I see maybe there's snow on the ground and I stick my foot out and I realize it's really cold. I operate on that basis because uh, that's the best thing I know, that I perceive through my five senses, as we uh, talked about in our, uh, our first class together. Um, and if there's something else going on, then when I learn about that, I'll deal with it. But at any given moment, I have to operate on the basis of what I know because that's the only thing I have to go on. Okay, um, so to achieve happiness, we need to live in the world of reality. Otherwise, we're going to run into conflicts. And living in the world of fantasy causes conflicts. So to take an extreme case, if I think I'm Superman and I jump off a tall building expecting to fly, I'm going to have a very rude awakening and a rather violent encounter with reality. So that's the first thing I need to do. Um, second... I have to undo conflicts. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, turn away from evil and do good. But I'll suggest to you that we can't just do good. We have to turn away from evil. Success and happiness cannot be based just on positive things. They have to be based on undoing the problems that make us unhappy. So the principle is that we start with undoing the bad. And we make sure there's no negative that we're dealing with and that we know how to deal with it when it happens. And that helps us to have the success and happiness. How do we undo conflicts? Um, I will suggest that most of our conflicts come from our emotions. Our emotions tend to cause us to see life incorrectly and inaccurately. They, can, they color our view of reality. We've talked about this in some earlier classes. By learning to question and to think clearly and to make rational decisions and then by going over and over correct ideas until they become clear to our minds, we get our intellect on top of the process and that can help us to remove the conflicts. Uh, even if we have really deep and stubborn conflicts, we might need professional help, but many conflicts can be removed just by seeing clear ideas, uh, as we talked about in our earlier section about uh, nine different uh, Torah tools we could use to help our understanding. So if we want to turn away from evil and do good, 
that begs a question, what is good and what is evil? So let's start with good. What exactly is it? We talk a lot about it, that a person ought to do good. But what does that mean? And how do we go about doing it? In tackling this, perhaps we should rephrase the question a little bit of a different way. If a tiger is in its element and designed to hunt other animals, and if a giraffe is meant to be a herbivorous animal that can run fast and reach a plant diet that's high off the ground, and if an anteater is designed to live in a particular climate and need ants, what is the design of man? What is he intended to do? What distinguishes him from the animals? Or look at a domestic dog. Uh, you know, I don't know, a black lab or a terrier that runs around the house. You feed him, you scratch his ears, you take him for a walk, maybe throw him a stick, and he's happy. He's fulfilled. Virtually all other animals that are in their natural habitats are like that. When they're in their normal environment and their basic needs are fulfilled, they're content. So what does that mean for man? What is his normal environment and what is his purpose such that when he fulfills it, it brings him the greatest satisfaction? So Terry and Laura, I see you wrote to help change the world around us for the better. Okay. So let's carry that one even a, a step further. Let's suppose we had made the world as good as we could and we fed the hungry Nobody's sick anymore. Everybody has enough to eat. And, you know, we've solved all those problems. What then would be the thing for man to be involved in? What would bring him the greatest satisfaction? Okay. Hashem, good. Okay. I'll suggest that as in the direction that you're going, okay, Linda, worship of Hashem, good, thank you. I'll suggest that it's none of the things that people usually think of when they think about success. It's not a fast car, it's not a new house, not a yacht in the Bahamas, not appearing on Oprah. I mean, people get those things, but they're still not fulfilled. In fact, as we discussed above, they're still seeking more. So those things just don't satisfy. What sets man apart from the animals is his ability to think abstractly. If you think about environmental terms, man isn't very well designed for survival, at least not in the same sense that the animals are. You know, he can't run that fast. He can't instinctively hunt. He has no built-in camouflage. But what he does have, which the animals don't have, is the ability to think and be involved in the world of ideas. That is the distinguishing factor of man. And I submit for your consideration that the ultimate purpose of man and the real good for him is to be involved in the world of ideas and the world of learning. And, as you all pointed out so well, the world of learning about Hashem and being involved in this kind of learning that we're doing right now, of digging into ideas about Torah and what the world is about. 
I'll also suggest that any other approach to life is ultimately going to result in some type of conflict or frustration. And the reason for that is that in order to function optimally, an organism has to function in accordance with its purpose, with its design. And man was designed by his creator to think and be involved in the world of thought and ideas. That is why fame, fortune, and power do not bring happiness. We see this all around us. We see people with fame who are some of the most unhappy people on earth. And the same for people with lots of money. And power, does that bring satisfaction? I mean, we can ask ourselves whether we know any person in a position of significant power who is happy, peaceful, and content. What we, by contrast, actually see, or often see, is that power becomes destructive and ultimately results in the demise of those who have it. So, if man is intended to be involved in the world of thought, ideas, and learning, what areas should he explore? Well, one way we could look at that is that if we define good to be anything in accordance with the will of the Creator, which makes sense because he's the one who created everything, then it would make sense that the good one should explore should be that which is in accordance with the will of the Creator. And we find that through the study of Torah. Because, after all, the Torah is, if you will, uh, God's instruction manual to man for life. So, What's unique here is that many people look upon the commandments of the Torah and the restrictions that the Torah imposes on us, either as Jews or non-Jews, as just that, like restrictions. Like if I didn't have all these restrictions, I could really have the fun. And yet, that's, that's totally the, a backwards approach. I mean, we, we sometimes think that the good is all the stuff we can't do or that we're not allowed to do. If we think about that in a holistic way, it's kind of a crazy notion, because why would God say, in essence, yes, I built this world with lots of good things in it, but I just want to make life difficult for you, so I'm going to put up lots of frustrating restrictions around you that have no real benefit other than to make life difficult for you. I mean, if you think about it, it's absurd. Can you imagine a parent doing that to their child intentionally? Of course not. No caring parent would do such a thing. Yes, they might put up restrictions and rules for the child to follow, but it would be for the child's own good, not because they want to purposely frustrate the child. In the same way, God has given us the Torah, an instruction manual for life, and it's designed to give us the best life here, here, right now, in this life, practically, in the challenges and the situations we face today. Not some pie in the sky, someday when I'm in heaven, everything will be wonderful place. But here, in, in, in the place where I live, the physical, I have to go to work five days a week kind of life, uh, where I have to pay bills and, you know, make sure my fuel oil tank is filled up and those kinds of things. Yes, there is a concept of life after this one in the Torah, generally referred to as the world to come. But it's very interesting to note that if you read the Torah, carefully, all five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there is virtually no mention of the world to come. The focus is all here. Why is that? Because this is where we are now. This is the arena in which I have to work out my problems and my character flaws and 
and deal with the, the stuff that I face. This is the arena in which I can protect myself. Now, the, the world to come is a whole abstract study in itself and beyond the scope of this class. Um, but it's interesting to note that the actions that a person takes to live the Torah life, the best life you can have right now, are the same actions that also give you the best possible life in the world to come. So to summarize, the good is being involved in doing the will of the Creator. Um, the will of the Creator, according to Torah, is that we should be involved in study and learning. Uh, in study and learning his Torah and the world that we live in and the world of reality. So note, going back now to where we started, how Psalms 1 summarizes this beautifully by describing the successful person. His desire is in the Torah of God, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. In other words, that person is constantly involved in the world of learning, constantly thinking about ideas of Torah during the day and at night. And that's the real good. And Jack, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, not, it's not the ultimate good, God himself. And that's true, and we want to know as much as we can about that, and our avenue to that is to the study of Torah. So that's the real good. Now, unfortunately, many people think that good is the opposite of evil. You know, you kind of all know the popular concepts. Um, there's the idea, well, if I help everybody, that's a good thing. But I would suggest that's a, our emotions talking to us because it's not a carefully worked out concept that's necessarily been rationally tested. For example, if we say that helping everyone and being kind to them is a good thing, well, what about Hitler? Would it be good for me to be kind to him if I had the opportunity? Or would it be good for me to, you know, uh, take him out uh, to try to save other people? So we have to go back to our first Torah tool, which is asking questions. Uh, and relying on our emotions to determine what's good and what's evil can result in exactly the opposite because we might not be seeing reality. So that brings us around to the second half of this equation, what is evil? Here's a very interesting definition which flies in the face of popular concepts of evil, uh, especially for people who spend lots of time reading things like Stephen King novels, um, where you get this sense of evil as this dark force and all these terrible things, or you know, Friday the 13th, part 27, or whatever those movies do. The Torah scholar Sadyagan said that evil is ignorance. Evil is ignorance. In other words, if a person is operating under ideas or notions that are not in accordance with reality, then one is committing evil. Now, that definition has some very interesting consequences. Um, because if you take someone in the world who say everyone thinks is a saint, uh, because they do great acts of kindness for people, but at the same time, they tell them over uh, religious ideas which are not in accordance with truth, then while the act of actually helping a person with their afflictions might be a laudable act, the act of sharing over incorrect ideas with them would be, under Sadhagan's definition, uh, an evil thing to do. 
Now, the word evil has a lot of emotions tied to it, so we have to be careful because in our society, we often tend to think of evil in really heinous terms like horrific crime or mass murder or something like that. And certainly those kinds of acts would qualify, but how many people would think that operating under an incorrect religious idea is evil uh, or using an incorrect approach to life? So this definition gives us a much more clear-cut approach uh, of identifying evil. And Jack, yes, ignorance of God uh, or having incorrect ideas about God, from my understanding, uh, Sajikan would say is evil. Um, so if we take that back to um, our, uh, our first psalm, we can see that the study of Torah and the world of reality is the antidote. Because remember it said, the praises of man are that he walked not in the counsel of the wicked and stood not in the path of the sinful and sat not in the session of the scorners, but his delight, his desire is in the Torah of Hashem, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. And then it gets to the results. And he shall be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and whose leaf never withers, and everything he does will succeed. Now we see from this there are three types of people that the successful man avoids. The successful person avoids the wicked person, which Sephorno says are people who are involved all their days with gathering money. So all their striving is focused on that. Um, and we could ask, well, if, if that's the case, um, what about tyrants? And how does Sephorno get the idea of gathering money from the verse? And the answer centers around the word counsel in that verse. He walked not in the counsel of the wicked. Okay? Advice and counsel are, are synonymous here. Advice means that I have a plan. So a wicked person in this verse is giving advice or helping a person to achieve a plan. And what would a wicked person's plan be focused around? Either making money or controlling people. So if you put them together, they have sort of one quality together, the desire for money, the desire to control people, and that's power. Now, it's true that most of us have some type of desire for power, likely, but it's not necessarily our main striving. But for a wicked person, that's what they're primarily focused on. The second part says um, the person stood not in the path of the simple. And Sephorno says that the sinful are the people who are drawn after the pleasures and desires that are harmful. Uh, these are people who read about the news or are out for a life of pleasure. You could, you could say, for example, that a hedonist falls into this category. Um, in the story of Esther, King Ahasuerus was that kind of person, drawn to the physical pleasures. Everything he did was uh, for, for his pleasure. You know, his wife didn't come when he called her, and he had her killed. He kind of acts a little bit like a spoiled brat. And a spoiled brat can never be happy. Uh, they can't deal with problems in life. They just tend to go nuts, which is uh, essentially the life of the sinner. So that's different from the wicked. The wicked are making plans for power. The sinner, in this context, is all about getting pleasure for himself. Then there's the scorner. And that's the person, according to uh, the Radak, who um, he says that these people are cunning. They're intelligent, although they're not wise, but they're very haughty. 
uh, and they speak evil about people. They place confusion and faults, and they reveal secrets. In other words, they're the person whose whole energy is, putting, is focused on putting everything down, putting people down, putting situations down. You probably met someone like that. They can show fault in everything. They've got something negative to say about everything. Uh, they're just uh, all about tearing things down. Um, and, you know, there, there are two ways you can feel good, either by doing something positive uh, or by putting others down. And he gets a certain pleasure out of this because it makes him feel good by putting others down. It's a fake out, but he manages to fake himself out in the process. Um, so, in essence, then, uh, our three verses, or our three um, people, uh, are the wicked and the, the sinner and the scorner. Let me just check my notes here uh, to make sure that we haven't missed anything. Um, the Radak pointed out that if you turn from the path of evil and you do not do good, then you've not completed any work. And you can't say that a person like that's happy. In other words, happiness is not just on doing the bad. The energy then needs to be put in searching for truth and reality. So you see in the verse it says you should study day and night, meaning all that person's energy is into Torah. The evil people put all their energy into some fantasy. The righteous person puts all of his energy into the world of truth and reality and orders his life according to that system. So we see that there are three people that we don't want to hang out with. The wicked who are making plans, the sinners who are focused on their pleasures, and the scorners who are putting things down. But instead, we want to make our desire and our focus on that Torah learning. There's one more interesting point here that it says, his desire is in the Torah of Hashem, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. Now, what does it mean by in his Torah? And the great Torah scholar and commentator Rashi comments that at first it's called God's Torah, or the Torah of Hashem in this verse. But after the student toils to understand it, it is considered as his possession, the student's possession. And so it's called his Torah, not his meaning God's, but his meaning the student's Torah, because he's toiled and he's grappled with it, and he's made it a part of himself. And so those, those ideas become real to him, and now it's become his Torah. And I see we're at the top of the hour, and at the conclusion of what I wanted to share with you, any questions that we can answer on this? All right. Well, in that case, I'll turn the microphone over to Jack, and thank you all for being here, and we'll look forward to talking with you next week. Thanks, everyone. I hope everyone can hear me okay.